The Pacecast from Pace Communications, hosted by Anita Pace and very special guests. John said to me, would you like to edit the Yorkshire Post? There's more to life than nice things. It's hard to describe, but the buzz you get from going to bed, knowing that there's somebody whose life has been improved by the work you did that day. We judge them by the merits of their ideas, intentions and actions, and nothing else. We got our heads together and said, you know, sometimes you've got to put rivalry aside for the greater good and we've got to do something collectively. You know, if I may, I would warn people about the dangers of switching off from the news agenda. Bad actors in powerful positions want you to switch off from the news agenda. They want you to close your eyes. You know, I call myself a, a fortunate frontman in a band, the talent behind me, you know, the, the musicians that make the thing together are behind me. I, I'm just standing in front of the team. Hello everybody and welcome to the April edition of our Pacecast. I'm Anita Pace and it's great to have you with us. Today I'm delighted to say that we're joined by James Mitchison, who's the editor of the Yorkshire Post. Hi James. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thanks for doing this. Right, as always, we've asked our guests to bring in something that's very special and unique to them. So I don't know what James has brought in with him, but he's going to show me and explain why it's so meaningful to him. So what have you brought in I've with bought, you? I've bought, if I can reach it, I bought in this, um, and it's a framed front page uh, from the Workshop Guardian, which was the first paper I was fortunate enough to edit. Uh, and as is traditional, um, the person who's leaving, which was me at the time, uh, gets an absolute hammering in all of the copy. I see. So this, is, this isn't a real no. front page. No. So every time a journalist leaves, um, if the other journalists think anything of them, <laughs> They get a front page. Like a commemorative um, Yeah, page. and this one's really right. special to me. So um, the editor at the time had left. It was George Robinson. He'd, uh, I succeeded George as editor, and he'd gone. Um, but he was kind enough to write the copy for it. Um, he came back to set all the images and the design. But George is no longer with us. He passed away a few years ago. Um, and he was really the first person that um, gave me a chance. And this was a time when... Journalists spoke a certain way and they came from certain schools and, you know, they had to have certain qualifications and background and, and I didn't fit any of the mould. Um, but George was, um, well, he obviously saw something in me that he trusted and he, he gave me my first trainee reporter's so job. So how long ago was this? What sort of uh, time? It's dated 4th of March 2011. 2011. Okay. So uh, that will be when I moved on to uh, the Lincolnshire titles. Uh, the flagship was the Grantham Journal at the time, but I picked up a bunch of newspapers uh, and ran them as an editorial director. So um, I had um, a big job to do on the Lincolnshire seaboard. Um, and yeah, this was sort of, it was the start of a, of a journey, really, because yeah. I'd been on, I started on the Workshop Guardian in 2002. And, and how stayed, old would you have been at that point? I'd have been 22. Right. So out of uni. Yeah, I, I, um, I, f I fell into a job at a bank, NatWest Bank, um, for about nine months, I think it was, and I hated it. I absolutely hated banking. I was selling products to people who didn't need them. Um, it was uh, quite a cold 
um, calculated, callous way of doing business, and I, I hated every minute of it. And so I, I applied to um, the Workshop Guardian. They had a vacancy. We went through a massive interview process. I remember it. You think I was applying to be the prime minister or something? Yeah. About twenty of us in this round table room. Um, but fortunately, I, I managed to bag one of the traineeships and, and went from there. So let's just dial it back a bit then. Mm. So um, you, you say you went into banking initially. So let's just, your childhood, your upbringing, was there anything that influenced you in terms of a career direction? Was there something that made you want to either go into banking or alternatively take no, journalism? Bank, bank, money made me go into banking. Yeah. I needed some <laughs> money. You know, I needed to go out boozing with my friends and enjoy myself. Um, so I just fell into that. Um it's not until I look back with hindsight. So my, I've told this story before, but um, my my mum is profoundly deaf, and she lived her life. So she's a news hound. She she had the news on all the time, but she had the subtitles on all the time as well. So unbeknown to me, I think I was getting brainwashed by journalism because the text was always on the TV. Right. Um, so I'd have been reading it, and I think sort of subconsciously, I've got my my mum to thank for getting me interested in current affairs and the news agenda and all of those things. And um, that was something that I didn't know was happening at the time, but you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think that was certainly a building So it block. wasn't a conscious decision at any point? Not until you went to the Workshop Guardian, obviously. Um, no, it wasn't a conscious decision. When, um, when I was 18 and I'd done my A-levels, uh, all I ever wanted to be really was a soldier. And I applied to uh, the army to be a an army officer, and I went through the, um, the regular commissions board down in Westbury. It was at the time, and completed the assessment with uh, flying colours, um, and went on to get some advice from one of the colonels, whose name escapes me now. But his his advice to me as an eighteen year old was: go to university, broaden your horizons, learn a bit more. And come back to us when you've a degree. Do a classic degree. Don't do a um, what he called a tin pot degree. I don't know what they were at the time, but do a classic degree. I chose English, read English, and of course, when you've got a degree, um, your options open up. Your my horizons were broadened, mm. uh, and I was sensible enough to decide not to be shot at for a living. <laughs> so. That was the end of your army career before it started. And I was in a, I was in a crossroads, yeah. I, I, it was either English teacher or journalist. That's where my head was at. And I didn't want to go back to university. I didn't want to do the additional teaching qualifications. I wanted to just get on and mm. start a career. So um, I started at the Workshop Guardian on the princely sum of £8,000 a year. So Which anybody, was probably quite <clears> decent <throat> back then, wasn't it? No. To, oh, wasn't it? No. Okay, all right. So it was... Um, about a third of the money I was earning at the bank, um, and I won't swear on your podcast, but my dad uh, made his feelings very clear uh, when I went from something like £25,000 oh, okay. plus bonus to eight. He wanted you to stay in banking. He, right? he, you know, he, he wanted me to earn money and have a sort of comfortable life, I suppose, but oh, I hated getting up in the morning and going into that bank. So your career in journalism began. So, you, so yeah. Workshop Guardian was where you first started yeah. out then. Mm. Um, and how long were you there? And then you moved on, didn't you, to um, another I was there nine people. years. And did, I was a very different person then. I was young, energetic, ambitious, driven, and probably, you know, quite sort of ruthless 
in the amount I worked. I'd work all hours God sends. I did everything in the office. You know, if the printer cartridge broke, I'd, I'd have a go at mending that. I'd fix that. Um, but I was... <clears throat> I was single-minded and I was focused on progressing. And progressing to what? Did you always have that editorship? As, so as at the you... time, and it's slightly different now, and perhaps we'll come on to that, but at the time there were various jobs and roles. Um, there was a linear pathway for journalists. So trainee journalists qualified as a senior journalist. Obviously, you get a really good understanding of what a journalist job is on a local newspaper, and it's really about people. It's about conversations with people. It's about compassion just listening you know and telling people's stories faithfully as accurately as you can um but from there you can go on to be as i did a sub-editor uh this is what's called a down table copy sub so that's where you start correcting people's rogue apostrophes and commas and punctuation it's quite a good job actually you get to sit at the back shouting at people whenever their copy is awry um and then i progressed to design sub uh, i spent some time as a a sports editor, did a news editing role, um, deputy editor, picked up a small newspaper that I led for a little while, but my first editorship was, was the Workshop Guardian. But I, even then I knew that wouldn't be it. I made it clear to those around me, the management team, that you know, whatever challenge they would like me to take on, I was willing to take it on. I didn't know they were going to give me a job 65 miles away in Grantham at the time. but. And where was home at this point? Um, North Knotts. Right, okay. So it was a bit of a trek. Yeah. And then did you move to Lincolnshire? With, oh, you no, stayed no. in North Knotts for stayed Grantham? Stayed where we were. Okay. Yeah, stayed where we were and did the community. It was just down the A1. It wasn't. It felt like a big deal at the time, but it really wasn't. So I'm intrigued then. So you're in um, North Knotts, then you work in Grantham. How have you ended up working for the Yorkshire Post? How did you get to where you are today? Um, I'm going to be talking a lot about people who've died in this conversation. <laughs> um, so. Um, I went all over the country, but largely it was following one managing director who taught me how to consolidate businesses, how to look at P&Ls, profit and loss sheets, uh, basically gave me business acumen as well as journalistic okay, understanding. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and he, um, he lent me his time and expertise as a managing director to help me to understand how to run a business sensibly um, and that meant I was able to consolidate. So the local news industry is a shrinking, it's a shrinking industry. And an awful lot of my time has been spent consolidating businesses, making sure that people who are employed, that you know, as many of their roles can be protected and safe as possible, keeping the business viable in the face of a changing market and a challenged business model, um, thanks to, to digital. Um, but John Bills said to me, I, I I'll skip out the Derbyshire Times and the Sheffield Star because that was the pathway I took. But John said to me when, when I was editor at the Sheffield Star uh, and we'd completed a project there, um, would you like to edit the Yorkshire Post? And this, Which is the flagship title, isn't it? It I is mean, the flagship title. No disrespect title, to yeah. Sheffield Star. But... No, the Sheffield Star was a brilliant title. I really enjoyed the Sheffield Star. It's a metro city daily that really knows its readership. Uh, the Yorkshire Post is a quasi-national broadsheet, but traditionally uh, it was once owned by Conservative Newspapers Limited. Traditionally, it's a conservative, right-leaning, uh, Tory-supporting publication. Until um, you arrived. And I remember saying to John, I can't, I can't 
in good conscience as the son of a coal miner. Um, my dad once said to me, if you ever vote conservative, you'll never get a Sunday dinner in this house again, lad. Um, <laughs> I, I can't, John. I, it just doesn't, doesn't suit me, doesn't fit me um, in good conscience. And I remember I said to John, I can't, I can't as the son of a coal miner, um, I can't in good conscience edit a conservative supporting newspaper. And John said to me, it can be whatever you want it to be but not unless you take the job. And that was him giving me permission to um, run the paper with the sort of guiding principle. I call it the North Star, and I say to the journalists at the Yorkshire Post, we don't judge people on right and left, we judge people on right and wrong. And um, we disregard people's politics. We must scrutinise people in power or people who are worthy of scrutiny. We judge them by the merits of their ideas, intentions and actions. And nothing else and that allowed me enabled me to pull the title squarely into the center ground where we'll be a critical friend of any government um but i the one the one thing i didn't want the york supposed to be was biased or leaning in any particular direction so you're clearly impartial which i think is certainly my perception of, of the yorkshire post but are you anti-political i mean what's your view on politics generally or no no so we've um two political reporters, a political editor and a Westminster correspondent. Um, we are, if you like, steeped in politics. But it's our job to try to cut through the spin and the bluster, the conjecture, the lies, frankly, and try to relay to our readers the truth. I can tell you that's very difficult, particularly these last few years. So um, I think we... Most of the time we get it right. Most of the time we're able to get to the truth. But so complicated and sophisticated is the political machine that you can't, you know, if I got up in the morning and said I'm not going to bed until I've got to the bottom of this, I'd never go to bed. So what's your, take it, moving away from the politics yeah. side, what are your thoughts on the current news agenda? Um, let me just tell you where I'm coming from because we work in media at Pace. Um, we're dealing with the news as everyone is 24-7. Um, but it is... It's easy to want to just switch off from it at the moment. There is so much um, bad news out there, a lot of negativity, both globally and closer to home. How are you finding it? You're on the front line. You're dealing with news day in, day out. What are, what are your thoughts on, on news generally? How long have we got? <laughs> um, so if I, you know, if I may, I would warn people about the dangers of switching off from the news agenda. Um, I'm going to sound like a mad conspiracy theorist here, but bad actors in powerful positions want you to switch off from the news agenda. They want you to close your eyes to the things that are happening. Um, but yes, I agree, the news agenda is depressing. There's, you know, on the national news agenda, there's the war in Ukraine, which is terrible to look at and our data and analytics show us that people were very interested in the war when it broke out very quickly they stopped looking at that stuff so we're in a privileged position now in that we've got so many digital tools so much data and analysis of what the readers are doing we can see them switching off from the news agenda uh, and we are having to adapt to that and how are you doing that then more lifestyle content 
uh, more what we call distraction content. Um, our top story yesterday was spring walks. Six walks? Spring walks. Okay. Six of the most pleasant walks around Yorkshire. That was our top story yesterday digitally. Okay. Um, so more lifestyle content, more human interest content, telling people's stories, inspiring people. I think there is definitely an appetite for that, though, because there is so much bleak news out there. Yeah. People do want to be cheered up. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can be so selective about where you get your news content. And there's so many different channels. And I think because of that, you've really got to find something that people want to want to see, yeah. want to read. Um, yeah, definitely. And I mean, local newspapers are closing at a rate of knots. This creates what's called a democratic deficit. And uh, Reuters Institute did some research recently that showed the communities or places that don't have a local newspaper with an engaged readership have a lower voter turnout. So it has a direct impact on democracy, yeah. a local newspaper, and having a well-informed local community who can share those conversations, those ideas, and be reassured, actually, that somebody is on guard, somebody's watching out for them. And it it's a worry for me that, how do I put this, without sounding too depressed, um, there is more information out there than ever before, you're right, it's in our pockets, it follows us around everywhere, um, but people are less well informed than they've ever been about the local matters in their local community, and that, that's good. Because me. everyone technically is a reporter, because everyone can post their own stories, their own news, whether it's right or wrong, and you were talking earlier about the truth, um, there's an awful lot of content out there, I mean we're all drowning in it, and it's knowing what is true and what's mm. not. But everyone has the opportunity to be a commentator, um, a cynic, a, a reviewer, a, a reporter. Yeah. And that's the market and landscape we're all working in. Yeah. Anyone can masquerade as that, but not everyone can do it. No. It would be my observation on that. There is plenty of chatter, gossip, speculation, uh, fake news, conspiracy theories. It's all out there. Um, but I was pleased three years ago. Um, we uh, took the Yorkshire Post to uh, PAMCO, which is the watchdog for trust in the local, well, in all media, printed media. Um, PAMCO awarded as the most trusted newspaper in Britain, accolade above the Times, Telegraph, Guardian, all of those big, big titles. And we, uh, two years ago, won Regional Newspaper of the Year, which th the guys at the Yorkshire Post said to me, they don't think the Yorkshire Post had that title in two decades so yeah there, there is an awful lot of information there's very little trustworthy information yeah. in the context of everything that's yeah. out there well congratulations to you because that's that's a huge achievement and a great testament to what you've you've achieved at the Yorkshire Post, and I think it is I think it is considered a, a very credible and trustworthy um, publication. So, yeah, congratulations. But what do you think the future of of newspapers is? Let's talk about newspapers as opposed to news. Yeah. Um, obviously, very challenging industry to be in. Um, what? How are you feeling about well, it? Newspapers won't exist in the future. Can you put a timescale on that? Um, well, plenty of publishers and editors um, have already gone by the wayside. Um, the newspaper 
it isn't a very environmentally friendly thing to produce. You know, you've got to get it around the country on vans. It's printed on, you know, dead trees. It uses ink. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, in terms of a time scale, if I have to come back and uh, have this conversation with you in 10 years' time, there'll be very few local newspapers. Mm. Um, the news brands, however, are healthier than ever in terms yeah. of audience. So let's talk about the Yorkshire Post and what, what the plans are. Oh, not necessarily plans. What are you doing in terms of the shift from print to digital? Yeah, we're, we're a multimedia publisher now. Um, we produce uh, video on a daily basis, think last count, we're up to 2 million video views a month on the Yorkshire Post. We um, do around 6 million articles read per month on the Yorkshire Post. On any given day, we'll have between fifty and 100,000 people visit the site. The audience that the Yorkshire Post enjoys now is as big as it's ever been in its history. Uh, because we're a global brand, we operate in a digital marketplace and we uh, we have data and analysis that shows a good chunk of our audience come to us from outside of Yorkshire. Which is what the digital market has opened up in terms of opportunity for you. Yes, because, massive opportunity. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it really is. And the journalists are better informed about how their, their work is received than ever. You know, there's a, in, when we're in the days of offices we largely work from home now um, but on our phones on our screens we have audience analysis that's live and you can again when we were in the newsroom when a journalist's story spikes as we call it spike used to be a bad thing in a newsroom that was when the news editor jammed your copy onto a literal spike in the office and it went in the bin now a spike's a good thing because <laughs> that's the digital data and analysis showing that there's a surge of audience coming to your story and you can see the, the guys get a buzz from that and that that gives me a buzz because you know as an editor the the things we've just spoken about the the most trusted brand award the regional newspaper award i didn't do that they did that you know the team did that it's for, you know i call myself a a fortunate frontman in a band, the talent behind me, you know, the, the musicians that make the thing come together are behind me. I, I'm just standing in front of the team. and But to see the enjoyment and the thrill they get, and that thrill and that enjoyment is because they know that the readers want to enjoy their work. Um, and that, that's a, it can be a really exhilarating feeling. Do you miss the, I mean, you mentioned that you're all working from home at the moment. Oh, sorry, at the moment, forever. <laughs> well, let's, see, let's see how it all goes. But do you not miss the buzz and thrill yeah, of the newsroom? Because yeah. that, to me, is what journalism was is was about. Yeah, I, I miss people making tea for me. Um, <laughs> I, I miss the swearing, you know. The excitement. The, the, the excitement, deadline. the buzz. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, when a big story snaps and you stop and you turn the TV screens on and you Silence descends on a newsroom that is otherwise. Oh, I've got, I've got goose goosebumpy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's a thrill, and it's a privilege. It's a privilege to work with, you know, those people who. I mean, it sounds, it sounds a bit too grandiose, but they're, you know, they are um, recorders of history, and and we still are that. And I think it's important to to remember in our job, you know, the responsibility that comes with having that privilege. So, what do you think the future is for? Journalism, more generally. Well, <laughs> journalism's 
as old as the hills. You know, human beings are curious creatures. And the desire to want to record and tell and account for things is, a, I think, is a human instinct. It, it, it will prevail regardless of, you know, the conditions of the business model or the marketplace. The journalism will prevail, absolutely. My, my worry is how much good quality journalism can sustain the pressures on the model. So um, there are two, I can name them if you want, but I don't have to, two huge American digital conglomerates that are hoovering all of the revenue up out of every country in the world, and it's going into the pockets of the United States. They're taking all of the ad revenue, all of our traditional classifieds, you know, all of that sort of lifeblood that used to fund the journalism is being hoovered up out of the country, away from publishers like us. And that has to change because if, I, if you'll bear with me just for a moment, the commissioning process traditionally was based on an editor or a news editor or a journalist's view on what mattered to the community they were serving. Is it in the public interest? Will this make a difference to people? Is it important? Now, in the current marketplace where clickability drives revenue, the commissioning process in some publishers, and it isn't the fault of the publishers, by the way, it is the conditions of the marketplace that's driving this. They're making decisions on commissions based on how many clicks will this get? Not, is it important? Not, is it in the public interest? Not, will it make a difference? But how much money can I generate by telling this story in this way? And your listeners, the people who are watching, they'll have all seen where there's a headline written and you think, crikey, has that really happened? You click yeah. on it and you go, no, it really hasn't. Yeah. They've tricked yeah. me. Mm. And the trust in what we do just evaporates in that click and they might never come back. So it's really important to me that the work we do, we think about, is this bettering the community we serve? Is this informative, interesting, and does it make a difference? Um, can that prevail in a world where clicks are king? I don't know. And I hope that DCMS government um, lobbying groups, I just hope that there is a, a shift, uh, an intent to legislate for uh, and control the amount of revenue that these big digital corporations can just hoover up out of the country. I suppose as well, it all depends on what the consumer wants. And there is, a, people do like to click on those stories. Um, they're, they're called clickbait for a reason because they do get you interested. Um, but you'd like to think there will always be a desire for real truth and honest news. Impartial news. So uh, just this week I had uh, on social media, uh, on Twitter, a number of people contact me to say, can you take a look at Tees Valley? Can you have a look at on Tees side of this story? Can the Yorkshire Post please take up the issue of the, you know, the Freeport and the development on Tees side? They're convinced that all is not well up there. And, you know, there, there, there were people, I've got an offer in my DMs of somebody offering £3,000 to contribute to a journalist to work for the Yorkshire Post, to be steered by myself and the team on getting to the bottom of that story. And 
as flattering as that is, it's really frustrating because this this thing I've been banging on about and banging on about, you, you'll miss us when we're gone. You know, when there isn't that guardian you can turn to for help, who can get to the truth of the matter, who can hold people properly to account. I mean, enjoy the clickbait all you like, but if we don't support meaningful journalism mm, mm. that represents good, frankly, without wanting to over-elaborate, the world will be a worse place. In your team, are you still seeing a hunger for real journalism to get the, those stories, those stories that really get you fired up? Oh, yeah. And, and how are you finding those stories? You, you know, you're not all sat together in a newsroom anymore. Or are people coming to you, like the example you've just given no, us? They, they do. They do. They come to us on a daily basis. Um, but it's generally through uh, Facebook messages, uh, Twitter DMs, could be just a mention on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's a really useful tool for any journalist because it, it makes you available. It, it is, if you like, the reception now. Yeah. People used to walk yeah. into receptions and yeah. say, can I speak to a journalist? And you'd take them into a back room and you'd, you'd have a chat with them. That's certainly how it worked at the Works Up Guardian. Um, now they can message you 24-7. You're... And you find in Twitter is the main channel for that? I think it depends on the journalist. But for me, it is. Yeah, yeah I do think Twitter actually still has an important role from a news point of view. If yeah. you think about the different social media channels, it's certainly probably the strongest from a news point of view. Um, I'm going to go off on a tangent now because we're talking about Twitter. So what's your perspective on Elon Musk and his ownership of the channel and what's happening there? Well, he's a businessman, isn't he? Through he and through, yeah. <laughs> care about whether Twitter is there for good or bad or anything else. He, he just wants to make a return. On a huge investment. <laughs> I wonder whether he lays up in bed at night thinking, why the hell did I do that? Mm. Um, I hope Twitter, so if I give you a couple of examples on um, how we've used Twitter. So one of the most recent, there was a, a, a footballer from Doncaster. I think she played for the Bells. Um, she'd bust her knee and her insurance didn't cover her knee and it could have been career ending for her. Um, and I used Twitter to uh, push out an appeal to help, I think it was like £6,500 or something like that for a private operation that she needed. Uh, and Gary Lineker saw it and paid it. Oh, wow. Um, that's, you know... That's the power the, of Twitter. That's the power that, of social media yeah. when it's <laughs> used for good. There was another occasion, um, elderly couple lost their life savings to con men over the phone. Um, we picked up that story, we ran an appeal, we did a crowdfunder. Ugh, my, my memory's hazy, but within, I think it was 48 hours, the general public had raised that elderly couple's life savings for them and Aww. given it back to them. Aww. And I, I do, I always say, you know, who's going to do that? You know, is Facebook really going to do that when local journalism's gone? Um, and we might get to it later but in the brief you sent me it said you know what what motivates you what why do you get up and do it for 21 22 years it's that mm. you know, it's the sort of hope that you'll spot somebody in need of help that day and you'll make a difference yeah i was just going to say those words you're making a difference yeah. a positive difference yeah yeah i can see that you said obviously 20 odd years in journalism so um what do you say to someone who's thinking now that you know the younger generation about pursuing a career in journalism versus god forbid tiktokers and influencers and youtubers and the glamour associated with that well don't develop 
a penchant for nice things because it won't pay you very well. Um, journalism, you mean? <laughs> journalism, yeah. yeah, particularly local journalism. Um, but do you know what? Go for it because the, there's more to life than nice things. You know, there's the. Uh, it's hard to describe, but the buzz you get from going to bed knowing that there's somebody whose life has been improved by the work you did that day. I mean, it, it must be. It must be like that for doctors, nurses, mm. you know, the public servants everywhere who do great work for not a lot, a lot of money. And why do they do it? Because they, they enjoy it. They get, you know, they get satisfaction from helping people. So 20 odd years in the industry. Uh, can you pick out one particular highlight of your career thus far? Uh, it's a, it's Difficult a, question. It's, that, a sorry. Great, it's a great question because the, if I'm, if I'm going to be sort of, I don't know, clever about it. You know, there are different highlights, different things give you di different sorts of satisfaction. Yes, see, seeing the team and leading the team to the Regional Newspaper of the Year award was a huge highlight because that was, you know, that was the least the team deserved for the effort they put in day in, day out. And I was so pleased for them because that, that recognition goes to everybody in the room not just the journalists, you know, we have a commercial team of about 20 people who work their socks off to keep the title viable. We've IT, HR, you know, the, that awards for everybody. And that was a highlight. Um, but in terms of content, probably there was um, a moment where we led, uh, I led uh, a campaign called Power of the North. Uh, it was when the railways imploded due to timetabling issues, and um, myself, the editor at the MEN at the time, um, we sort of, and we're rivals, of course, um, but we still- MEN, Manchester Evening Manchester News. Manchester Evening yeah. News, yeah. Um, we got our heads together and said, you know, so sometimes you've got to put rivalry aside for the greater good, and we've got to do something collectively. And in the end, about 30 local newspapers from right across the north of England joined the campaign we published the same front page on the same day i remember that enough yeah. is enough yeah. um my uh, again here's another dead person sadly um my op-ed editor at the time tom richmond one of the most fierce ferocious cantankerous cynical journalist a brilliant brilliant man and we still miss him um he wrote the copy that copy was picked up and used on 30 odd newspapers and um, we led for probably a week, the news agenda. So small regional papers with people who care about the place they live and obviously do work for the place where they live. Um, we led Radio 4, we led the Today programme, we led Sky, we led the BBC, and that was because of our determination to put rivalry aside, work together on something that really mattered because the train's not working, ruins people's lives. Mm. You, know, you miss your first dates, you can't get to that job interview, you can't go and see mum in hospital, you, you know, all of these things that... Matter. They just matter. You know, yeah. there, there was one story of an elderly lady who got left on a platform in North Yorkshire somewhere four or five hours and you just sit back and you think, right. So what was the outcome of the campaign? It's ongoing, isn't it? The trains still don't work properly, um, but at the time, the transport secretary came along to the to the Yorkshire Post. Politicians come to the Yorkshire Post a lot. I've met 
I think it's four prime ministers. Um, some of the franchises were removed from the operators. And they were renationalized. Grant Shapps and Jake Berry came to the Yorkshire Post. We had a sit-down meeting with them. Um, they told us that they agreed with us that it wasn't good enough, and they stepped in to improve things. But it's um, it's it's one we're not going to give up on. No, and you are shining a light on something that's very very important to people. Yeah, um, and uh, clearly you've got the respect if the Prime Ministers, four Prime Ministers you've met are coming to talk to you, then they understand that you are representing the voice of the people and the voters, importantly, for them. Um, yeah, I think so. so I mean, um, Boris Johnson came. Uh, David Cameron came to the Oxford Post. Liz Truss, uh, not Liz Truss, I forgot sorry. she was Prime Minister. Theresa May. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> Theresa May came. So Theresa May was uh, hugely generous with her time, very gracious. We One of our campaigns that I can't take credit for um, has been uh, loneliness and the the stigma of oh, isolation. Yeah, yeah, that really gets to me, that one. That campaign was launched before I arrived by a previous editor, um, but we continued the work, and Lindsay Pantry, who was our social affairs correspondent at the time, did amazing work on the loneliness campaign. This, this was a campaign that was launched by the Oxford Post when people just raised an eyebrow loneliness mm. what's, what's and this happening? was pre a global pandemic yes it was yeah I mean, it was. God. Um, and uh, Theresa May asked me who the journalist was that had led the loneliness campaign and I told her it was Lindsay and she walked over to Lindsay and she shook her hand and thanked her personally and said to Lindsay without you and the Yorkshire Post there wouldn't be a minister for loneliness which Theresa May created wow. and again that's you know little moments like that um that's why we do it. You've clearly got a lot of admiration for your team, um, which is another testament to you as the, as the leader of the team that you've built such a such a powerful, strong and united team behind you. But who do you admire outside of the Yorkshire Post? I mean, outside your own team. Journalistically or? Yeah, journalistically or maybe more generally in, in business. Um, that's a difficult one. I tend not to, this sounds really crappy, Try not to have heroes, but look for heroic traits, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, not least because I don't like to be let down by people. So if you don't pin your <laughs> If you don't put them on a pedestal, on, yeah. <laughs> on, on a person. <laughs> um, but I, I do admire Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian. He's uh, been very, very supportive of me. He's given me you know, a few tips and hints and advice. Um, so I do admire... Uh, Alan Rusbridger, certainly. Um, in terms of outside of, I mean, I'm, I'm just going back to last night, actually. You know, Harry Kane becoming the top scorer for his country. He tweeted a note out this morning just saying, We're in your wildest dreams, you know, I didn't think this possible. And that sort of dedication and commitment and single-mindedness, which I think defined my early career or something like that, you know, that, that single-minded focus on wanting to progress. I'm very different now. I'm a, I'm a different sort of person. I think having children helps that. Yeah, you mellow slightly when you've got children, don't if, you? <laughs> if you don't develop at least a little bit of patience, then you're in trouble, aren't you, when you get kids? Um, so that single-minded drive and focus and relentless work ethic that I had in my early career, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm rewarded 
these days as much for the work I do, more for the sort of the conversations you have, the coaching that you give, the guidance and advice that you offer. Um, but certainly somebody with the, you know, the drive and the focus and the clarity of application that Harry Kane has, must have had th throughout his life to reach the very pinnacle for yeah. his countries, yeah, that's something special. I, I, I like sport. I get a lot of sort of, I draw a lot of my thinking from sport. I coach a little grassroots footy team. Uh, and I love that, and I love seeing the kids develop. And and actually, I think in the tough moments, we had one just last week where one of the the boys was crying, um, and helping that little lad to overcome his fear and talking through, you know, why it's important sometimes to get through those difficult moments. So I I do I read a lot of sport coaching manuals, and I try to lift and shift some sort of sports coaching methods and techniques into the way I run. My yeah, team. there's a lot that's applicable, isn't it, between yeah. the, the, the two disciplines. So we'll, we'll uh, round up in, uh, in a second, but I just want to ask you then about James and the future for James. So a very successful career to date. Congratulations again Thank on you. what you've achieved. But I just want to ask you one final question about your future. What are you, any plans you want to share with us? Anything you still want to achieve that you haven't Yet. I feel like you know something I don't. Um, <laughs> it did just sound like that, didn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not, I'm not done at the Yorkshire Post. My, my team will be uh, depressed to know, probably. Um, I'm, I'm sure not. I, I originally set out intent on doing five years, but it's moving towards seven now. So who knows? I might even end up being the, the longest serving Yorkshire Post editor. I've got a way to go yet. But What, was, what is that then? How um, many years is that? Do you know? I'm not sure. I'll have to go. Go and check the record. Double figures. Uh, I think I'm only the 15th editor of the Orchard Post, oh, believe yeah. it or not, in its history. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, you know, at some point, all good things come to an end, don't they? Um, if and when that happens, I'd like to think I can contribute to thinking about how the regional press, local journalism survives and, and thrives, mm. frankly. Um, so um, I've become fiercely protective of what we do and why we exist and what we what we what we stand for so certainly no interest in working for a national title that that type of journalism doesn't really interest me i i like to to do my work if you like at a local grassroots level so if i can be of any assistance in reimagining the the model helping to create a marketplace that is fair and rewards journalists who do good work properly um you know i'd like to think i can play a part in that oh well what a great subject to end on so thank you for that right um as is our now our tradition i'm going to call it our tradition because we've done it a few times um so now i'm going to ask you a question that was left by our previous guest on the pace cast um i'm now reading this question for the first time i'm dreading this one <laughs> <laughs> um Oh, it's quite an appropriate question, actually. So, okay, uh, it's about Hull. Um, so why do you feel Hull has minimal coverage in regional and national press, given its rich maritime history, national importance in green energy, a thriving business community, and a rapidly growing reputation as a leading filming location? Um, what a great question for you. <laughs> well, Hull was on our front page only the other day, and it was top top leading article on the Freeport, um, 7,000 new good jobs. Uh, we have a dedicated journalist, Alex Wood, who operates out of the deep. 
She's been on the beat for a long time. She's been around a while, yeah. She knows the place like the back of her hand. And she's brilliant. Of course, I'd I'd love to invest more in journalists in and around the patch, but the the economics are the challenge. So if that person seems to believe that the press coverage here is inadequate, as I said previously, you have to look away from the publishers and what the publishers are doing because they're just trying to survive in a marketplace with conditions that are not conducive to public interest journalism. And if I could give or ask of the listeners one thing, it would be write to your MP, tell them that you're not satisfied with the quality of or the amount of journalism done in your local community, ask them why and tell them to do something about it because the power is with them. They can legislate for journalism that is done for the betterment of the community rather than the betterment of the pockets of the publishers. Yeah, and this is obviously very topical at the moment because of all the changes being proposed at the BBC with the local news and local reporters. Yeah, but again... People should be careful what they wish for, because if there isn't a publicly funded news organisation like the BBC, then everything becomes about the clicks. The the BBC gives me hope that journalism in its purest form can survive, because it isn't vulnerable to the headwinds of the marketplace. It's publicly funded, generously funded, and... Apart from this false equivalence that the BBC has fallen, you know, the trap that they've fallen into, where if it's raining outside, they'll get two experts on precipitation, where one debates whether it is raining, one, you know, that's not your job. Your job isn't to debate the truth. You know, as I say to my guys, if it's raining outside, it's not your job to ask two people whether it is or it isn't. Stick your bloody hand out the window and tell me whether it's raining. You know, and that's journalism boiled down to its purest essence. So, yeah, I, I would urge people pick up a pen, pick up a laptop, write to your local MP and insist that they examine the problem and do something about it. Thank you. Um, I agree with everything you've said today and you've been very inspirational to listen to. Um, Your passion for local news is evident. Thank you for sharing that with us today. It's been a, a, a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. So thank you for joining us this month. Um, As always, you can contact us via our social media channels. We'd love to hear from you, whether that's a question or suggestion about who you'd like us to interview. Um, We look forward to talking to you again next month, but until then, bye-bye. This Pacecast was recorded and produced by Engine 7 Audio, award-winning audio production.